hundreds of protesters who are throwing uh, rocks, bricks, the sort of stuff they're throwing at uh, officers here. Most of the houses. The great problem of mankind today is still that there's too much hatred around. That is the name of the series and the question that we're asking over the next couple weeks here at Seacoast. We're going to be looking at some personal and some controversial topics where the presence of love could literally flip the script and change the tone of the conversation or our perspective on the topic entirely. My name is Josh Walters. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast. So glad that you are here with us this weekend. I want to welcome you if you're joining us online or in one of the venues or at an off-site campus, wherever you might be. We are glad that you are here. Especially want to welcome you if you're here for the very first time. I still remember our first time here at Seacoast and how slowly over time we started to put faces to names and this great big church felt like family. We want you to know our staff and dream team is praying and working hard that that would be your same experience as well. So we're glad that you're here. I want to give a special shout out to my wife. She is with a team of 10 other women on a missions trip in Togo, West Africa, and they're going to be joining us at some point this weekend. So Katie, if you're watching, I just want to say, please, please come home. <laughs> I miss you, baby. You know. <laughs> hey, last week we kicked off this series, Where is the Love? And Pastor Greg did it by introducing two different songs, one of which was released in 1972 by Roberta Flack and Donnie Hathaway, a little bit more of an R&B vibe. The other was released in 2003 by the Black Eyed Peas, both of which were entitled Where is the Love? Katie and I got married in December of 2002, so the Black Eyed Peas, that was on my playlist, right? And I was asking that question a lot our first year of marriage. Where is the love? But I feel like 
Pastor Greb left a little bit of meat on the bone for me. Uh, for any of you who might have been born in the 80s, in 1997, another band called Hanson came out with a song called Where Is The Love. How many of you remember this one? Right? <laughs> Some of y'all still listening to that song, aren't you? <laughs> for those of you thinking, Hanson, I just don't... I don't remember them, I don't recognize that song. Do you remember this one? <laughs> Please stop, God stop. <laughs> that song may well be in your head the rest of the day, so you're welcome, right? I'm just here to bless you. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. God, we thank you so much uh, for this day. It's so crazy to me how a song that I heard in middle school, uh, I could still know the words. It could take me back to places, recall memories, feelings. Um, I just pray that somehow this weekend you would accomplish that same thing with your word, that it would reach places of our heart and mind, that you would establish some beliefs and convictions that we might live out of for decades to come. And so we just give you this time and pray, God, that your word would not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, I got a question for you as we get started. How many of you have ever participated in a mud run of some kind? All right, bunch of folks. There's all kinds of these deals, the Spartan race, the Tough Mudder, the Rugged Maniac. Well, a couple years ago, some of my friends were getting together. They were like, hey, let's sign up for the Rugged Maniac. And personally, I just hate running. And not like a, I dislike it, but I hate it. And for those of you who enjoy it, it's largely your fault because I'll be driving up the road in my car and my, my question is this, have you ever seen a runner smiling? No, not until they finish, right? It's this prolonged look of like pain on their face until they actually stop running. And so I'm like, hey, that's a good idea. Why don't we pay to go running? No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> that's awful. And so I thought, well, this rugged maniac, it's got 25 obstacles. It would kind of break up the monotony. Such a mental game for me. I'll be with friends, like, okay, let's do it. Well, we start on this rugged maniac, and pretty quickly I realize that a significant number of these obstacles have water in them. And that wouldn't be bad, except for it was a cold day. And so pretty much out the gate, I'm running and cold and wet. So this is already three times as bad as just running by itself, right? And so we come up on this one obstacle where they had dug these tunnels in the ground, probably 30-foot-long tunnels. And you jump down in this tunnel, you're crawling on all fours, and it's partially full of water. Okay, so there comes a point in the tunnel where you don't see any daylight. And there's five or six people in front of you, five or six people behind you. You're only moving as fast as the slowest person in front of you, and your head keeps bumping into some stranger's muddy rear end. You know, I was like, sorry, God, oh, you know, crawling. Well, I realized at one point that um, I couldn't get out if I wanted to. I don't know where I would go or why I would wanna get out, but I started panicking. My heart started racing. I'm trying not to freak out in this tunnel, all muddy, and, but I start screaming like, hey, go, 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 you know? <laughs> so I, I eventually get out, but I'm telling you, like it really, I was scared. It brought about all kind of anxiety for some reason. Well, we finished the race, couple weeks go by, we get this email from Rugged Maniac that you could sign up now, enter in this code and save some money. Do next year's race. So all my friends are like, hey, let's do it, man. Let's sign up for the race. And immediately, guess where my mind went? Back to that tunnel. Like, nah, dog, I ain't doing that race. <laughs> Y'all have fun. Take a picture, Photoshop me in it, tell me how it goes, I'm not doing it, <laughs> right? But then I got to thinking, like, I've seen the race now. I know how they manage the course. I've seen the layout. 
And there's actually field on both sides of the obstacles. And so I could run the race, and when we get to that obstacle, y'all go ahead and I'll just run around, and I'll pick back up on the other side. <laughs> we can do that thing together. So I thought, yeah, I'll do that. That's fine, I just won't do that obstacle. And for that matter, I'm not gonna do the buried pole hop or the swingy thing either. <laughs> you know, I ain't trying to hurt myself, not out here to impress anybody. I just wanna have fun, make some memories with my friends, right? So that's what I did. I finished the race, at the end of it, they gave me this medal, right? I went home, my kids thought I had done something awesome, right? But I didn't do the obstacles. I got the T-shirt, just like everybody else. Worked out well for me. Now it's okay in a mud run when you come up on an obstacle that scares you, that brings about fear or anxiety of some kind. It's okay for you to go around it. But what do you do in life when you come up on a season or a circumstance that brings about that same kind of anxiety or terror within you? And there is no field to where you can just go around it, but you have to go through it. The very thought of it keeps you up at night. It starts robbing you of sleep. Man, you're anxious, you're afraid, you're worried about it. It terrifies you. There's a way around it. You've seen some people take that route as well, but you acknowledge that, man, if you try to avoid it instead of just going through it, what you're really doing is trading one set of problems just to take on another. You know, there's probably a lot of areas of life that that illustration or picture would be applicable, but the primary one that comes to mind for me is in the context of marriage. The question that I want us to ask today is where is the love for marriage? And before we get started, I'd like to set some ground rules. I know that in a room this size or even this weekend that there's thousands of people joining us uh, that are on in all walks of life, right? There's some folks that have been divorced, uh, others that have been remarried, others that right now in this season uh, may been, be in the most painful season of your life. And because of that, a couple passages I wanna share with you, the first of which is Romans 8, one and two. It says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death, that word there, condemnation, means there is no damning sentence. As you look into your future, there is no label. You're not destined to a future of pain or loneliness because of your decisions and the consequences of your sin or things that have happened to you. You need to know that the abundant life that Jesus came to offer me is the same thing that he has in store for you. And so God's heart nor my intent is for you to leave today feeling any shame or guilt because of where you've been, what you've done, or where you might be today. In fact, Romans 8, 28, there on your outline, says that we know that God works all things, say all things, all things together for the good, say good, all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Somehow God, in his grace and kindness for us, is able to redeem our choices, our sin, our brokenness to even still then bring about good in our lives. I would not be here today had my dad not gotten a divorce from his first wife, married my mom, and the two of them had me. Somehow, God in his grace and kindness uses all things to bring about good in our lives. The two institutions established by God are the church and the family. The church is the vehicle in which the gospel, the good news, advances. Not the building, but the people. The church is a community of people committed 
to gathering together, hearing the truth, responding in faith, living on mission, and continually being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. Matthew 16 says, not even the gates of hell will prevail against God's church. Knowing that the enemy can't stop it, he targets all of his efforts on the family. The family is the fabric of the church. When someone takes a step towards God for the very first time and they show up to this place, they don't encounter an institution, they encounter a person, right? It's within the context of a family that you experience love and acceptance and and faithfulness and forgiveness. The enemy knows if he can't stop the advancing of the church, he's gonna do his best to rip apart the family so that he can get us as the body of Christ focused on each other on our own pain and our own problems, that we might get distracted from a world that is lost and in desperate need of Jesus. Every Monday, we have a a meeting here at Seacoast called Message Planning, and the teaching pastor who's up that week comes into that meeting with the topic, the, the passage, a proposed outline. They bring everything they've got into this meeting, and there's a team of people that kinda give them feedback and help give illustration ideas to help make the message as good as it could possibly be. And this week, I came into that meeting with much of the scripture there on your outline, but I also had a Facebook post that I wanted the team to read. It was written by a friend of mine named Bonnie Farrell. Her and her husband, Preston, have been married for 11 years. Preston's family has been a part of our church and very involved for a long time. And I'd like to share her Facebook post with you. This is what it says. Preston and I have been married for almost 11 years. I went into the marriage with a mindset of for better or for divorce. I have entertained the idea that if things don't work out with us, that's okay. For 11 years, I've lived with one foot out of the door. As you can imagine, that doesn't bode well and doesn't develop security or trust or intimacy for that matter. While I've had this one foot in and one foot out of the door mentality, Preston has always declared that divorce is not an option. He has held on tight to our covenant and chased after me, reining me back in. Quite honestly, it's probably why we are still together today. The amount of times that I have told this man that I was leaving him is too numerous to count. Even in the midst of that, he has remained steadfast. In the last year or so, we've been working through some really hard things. One of those things is me getting to a place of all in, getting to a place of not only declaring but also believing that divorce is not an option. It's not because I don't want to be with him, but it's a defense mechanism that I have created against him. Last night I attended a women's group where the theme of the night was how we needed to change our language. This resonated with me on so many levels. The way that I speak about my children, my relationship with my husband, and myself is changing. I'm currently in a fake it till you make it stage because the language of positivity has not come natural to me. I love my husband. I wanna fight for our marriage and our family. I've let past hurts, habits, and hangups get in the way of that. I write this that in hopes that it will help someone. I hope that this resonates with someone. I say this out loud so that it no longer has power in my life. We as women often live with our own thoughts in our head, and for me, those thoughts put me in a downward spiral. I want you to know that I'm here if you need to talk. If you have been here too or are here now, you're not alone. I'm here also to say that hard work pays off. It's not fun and we're nowhere near fixed, but we're moving towards a closeness that we've never had and I'm hopeful. Isn't that incredible? Man, the first time, I know. The first time I read it, literally, I I sat in my desk and cried. So many faces flashed before my eyes. I feel like, from all the couples I've sat down with, Bonnie put language to the cultural heartbeat 
of marriage. I've never heard that phrase for better or for divorce. So many couples recite the same words at the altar as they're exchanging vows, but the reality of their posture looks much more like the painting that was done today in the opening set of worship, right? It's a bride and a groom at an altar with their hands, fingers crossed behind their back, right? You've never seen that, and it looks comical, but it's the truth behind what so many couples do today. I really hope this works out, but if not, that's okay, right? Well, man, her posture and Preston's response is so countercultural because essentially what Bonnie said without saying was that I acknowledge that I'm part of the problem. I've got some work to do. I've maintained this attitude. I've done these things, and because of that, I've been doing some hard work. They've been working on it together all the while while she's told him, I wanna leave you, I'm gonna leave you. He has been steadfast. Man, what a picture of God's love for us. That's what the nature of this relationship is supposed to be. Divorce is not an option. He's told her over and over. I have every reason in the world to believe that they're gonna experience every bit of the goodness and blessing that God had in mind when he created this covenant because of their willingness to work on it. Man, her humility and courage just to put that out there. So, so marked me. That day in message planning, as we uh, started processing that post, there's a guy named Jim who's a part of that meeting that was born in the 40s. And he said, hey, as I was a kid growing up in the 50s, I knew what divorce was, but literally in my school, in my family, in my neighborhood, I didn't know a single kid whose parents had actually done it. What? Pastor Chip said, yeah, me too. I didn't know. And he was like, are you kidding me? Can you imagine a childhood where as a kid you didn't know anyone who had actually done this? Our kids have so many friends in our neighborhood from their school whose parents have gotten divorced. They've in some way seen the pain and emotion of it up close. That man, Katie and I can't even have intense fellowship at the house without one of our kids coming up to us with tears in their eyes to say, are, are you and daddy getting a divorce? It's like, baby, why would you think that? No, we're not getting a divorce, but they've seen it firsthand, right? They've experienced the pain and consequences of divorce. Now, growing up as a kid in the 50s, the outcome of those marriages might have appeared to be more noble, but the question that came to mind for me is, were people just happier then? Like, was marriage just easier? It's like, no, people were still people in the 50s. And if there were guys wanting divorces in biblical times, and there are today, you can be sure that there were in the 50s. Just because the outcome of their marriages appeared to be more noble because they were staying together does not mean that they were happier, even though they aligned more with God's intent. So what was God's intent? Genesis 2 there on your outline says it this way. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and birds of the sky and all the wild animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man. <laughs> a little something for you there. She was taken out of man. 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. One man, one woman, becoming one flesh. That was God's intent. The question then is why didn't people get divorced in the 50s? And I would argue because it was, because it was culturally frowned upon. Culturally, it wasn't acceptable. There would be consequences for folks who did it. So they would rather stay in a marriage and be miserable than get a divorce and be labeled by society. Comparatively, where you look at today, my goodness, the shift that we have made. Our culture has elevated our happiness above our commitment to our marriage. They've said, you've only got one life, right? Biblically, there are some passages that talk about it, right? You can get a divorce if he's been unfaithful sexually. Well, we've broadened that to mean that if he's unemployed, if he's not providing, if he's not a good dad, if, if she's not a good wife, if she's not able to manage the home, if you're just tired of working on it, you ought to get out of it. Biblically, there's some grounds, right? God made a consent, didn't he? There in your outline, Matthew 19, Jesus addresses that. It says, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. This was a culture where if a guy decided he didn't wanna be married, he would send the woman off. But women had no rights or protection or provision. It was a dangerous situation. So God consented through Moses that if you're gonna do this, we gotta have some order to it because it's putting our, our women in harm. He wasn't endorsing marriage, saying this was a good thing. In fact, that word that Jesus uses, because your hearts were hard, literally means selfish and unloving. It's as if Jesus is looking at this gift in the covenant of marriage and saying, where is the love? Of all of the reasons that a couple could get divorced, there is not one of them that's pleasing to God. It was not his intent from the beginning. Malachi 2, there on your outline, says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. He hates it because it's supposed to be a picture of the gospel. It is the relationship where a world that is lost and in desperate need of a savior would look to us and see faithfulness, forgiveness, unconditional love modeled. But when we divorce, we make him, we make the good news out to be a liar. He hates divorce. So the question then for me, for us, is what would it look like to start or, or walk that same journey that Bonnie and Preston have been on? If you're married, you can acknowledge that we've had some issues. Neither of you are perfect people. We all need Jesus. What would it look like for us to begin this journey to have an all-in marriage and ensure that we experience every bit of what God had in mind when he Created it. So there on the back of your outline, I can have an all-in marriage when I, number one, abandon the exit strategy. Abandon the exit strategy. We just read in Genesis 2 that God uh, authored this relationship. He created the, the covenant of marriage, the institution of marriage, and because of that, we have to approach it and operate within it his way. 
We have to approach it and operate within it his way. And in regards to how we approach it, his expectation for us is that we would maintain physical purity. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 there on your outline says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So one man, one woman, that this would be a gift that you experience and share together. Hebrews 13, 4 says, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Guys, what he's saying is that until she is your bride, she is the bride of Christ. So many couples come to the church or seek out professional counseling for, for marriage counseling, thinking they have marriage problems, but really what they have is single person problems. Because when they were dating, they struggled to maintain purity. They struggled to have discipline in this area and they brought that into their marriage. And now that lack of discipline and commitment is manifesting itself in other areas. We want to approach this our own way, but God laid out for us how we have to approach it. I've been in, in premarital counseling appointments before, and part of that process, when you come to see a pastor, I'll explain to folks we sit down with, the reason you've come to see me and not a justice of the peace is because you want God's favor and blessing in your marriage, and because of that, we have to approach it his way. And so we'll talk through the purity covenant, and then I'll ask them, are you sleeping together? and their eyes are like, boom, like I wasn't expecting them to say that, you know? <laughs> and so I had one couple where at the same time, the guy said no and the girl said yes. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna let y'all talk about this for a minute. <laughs> I might need to do another teaching. This could only mean one thing. <laughs> I had another guy who, we talked through the purity covenant, they both signed it and he went to date it and homeboy literally looked up and asked me if he could post-date the purity covenant. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just get one more uh, meeting in before? <laughs> Let me circle back here. I think you missed the point entirely, the heart of this issue, right? We have to approach it God's way if we want to experience his blessing. And once we're in the relationship, he also lays out how we are to operate in it. Ephesians 5 says it this way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, we're very familiar with the wives submit to your husbands passage, right? That's one culturally that gets a lot of pushback, but immediately before it, is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that our relationship would be marked by give and take, that there would be mutual voluntary submission, right? But then he goes to establish headship in the same way that you're gonna get in a car after church today to drive home or wherever you're going, there's one steering wheel, one brake, one gas pedal. He, he establishes headship as the man, as the head of the home, as Christ is the head of the church, but then, guys, he goes to lay out how we are to operate within that. We're not to lord our authority over our wives, but to love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. The, the pathway for us to operate in marriage is one of death, that we would steadily be dying to ourselves, pouring ourselves out to love, care, protect, nurture, and meet her needs. Now, we would never call it this. We would never say it this way. 
But when we choose to approach the covenant of marriage our own way, or when we choose to operate within the relationship our own way, we are entertaining an exit strategy. We're wanting to do it our way, and what we're really doing is rolling the dice on our future as to whether or not we'll finish this thing together. If you want to have an all-in marriage, you have to abandon the exit strategy. You have to trust God that he has blessing and in store for you if you approach this thing and operate within it his way. So I can have an all-in marriage when I, number one, abandon the exit strategy. Number two, there on your outline, when I have a commitment strategy. Have a commitment strategy. I recently read a book called Rework by Jason Fried and David Heineman. They're the guys that uh, started uh, Basecamp. It's a project manage- management software. And as they were starting their company, they started meeting with advisors and business people and all this stuff. And he kept getting presented with the question, what's your exit strategy? And he was getting so frustrated because he was saying, I'm not launching this business to get out of it, right? Like, if you start something thinking about how you're gonna get out of it, you're asking all the wrong questions, right? Like, how how profitable can I make this thing and how quickly and who do I need to establish a relationship with so that maybe we can sell it? He said, I'm trying to launch a dream in my heart, right? I'm not trying to start this thing to get out of it. What I need is a commitment strategy. Right, what am I gonna do when I can't cover payroll, when my team's frustrated, when my product's not selling and I wanna quit? Like, what am I gonna do to ensure I stay in it? And in reading it, man, I could not help but to think about this relationship, right? In marriage, we have to have a commitment strategy. Why is that? Because we're going to have problems. At times, it's gonna be just because of the world that we live in. John 16 says it this way, for I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Man, we do not live in heaven yet. There are crazy people, crazy circumstances. You're gonna experience trouble because you live in a fallen and broken world. At times, it's gonna be because you have an enemy that is real. John 10, 10, there on your outline. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The key word, for me there is only. His only purpose is to steal your first love, to kill your dreams, to destroy your legacy, and not just yours, but that of your children. If they would experience your pain and brokenness, maybe they will go on to repeat it too. The enemy is in no way intimidated by your wedding day or your vows. He's thinking they're not gonna remember those words 10 years from now anyway. As soon as they start having kids, feeling the pressures and the demands of life, I'll come, I'll come to see them, then you have an enemy who is real and his only intent is to steal, kill, and destroy. Sometimes it's the world, sometimes it's the enemy, and sometimes it's just you and me, right? I love Paul's commentary on himself in Romans 7. He says, I do not understand what I do, said every woman about their husband ever, right? <laughs> what planet is he from? <laughs> I don't know. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing, right? You just see the like frustration in him? It's like, I want to do good. I had it in mind to say good, to be nice, and I just didn't do it. It's like, oh. Man, we've all felt that way from time to time. Sometimes we are the problem. Sinful, man, just in need of Jesus, his power, his presence at work in our lives. So what does it look like for us to have a commitment strategy? In some ways, I think it would look similar for all of us. 
You may not be a couple who prays together regularly, but in a commitment strategy, you would say, you know what? When it feels like we're just not on the same page, we're praying together every day. We're gonna get on our knees in our room. I'm not even comfortable praying out loud, but I'm gonna pray over you. You're gonna pray over me. We're gonna pray for our marriage. We're doing it every day. You may not be a couple who reads the Bible regularly together, but in those seasons where you're not connecting, you say, you know what? We're gonna go get a couple's devotional. We're gonna read a book of the Bible, just a verse or two together every day. We're, we're gonna do this thing. I remember a couple years ago, Katie and I weren't on the same page, and I said, babe, that's it. She was in a season where she was doing study after study after study. I was like, that's it. Whatever study you're in, I'm doing it. We're not connecting. What are you reading? She was in week two of Beth Moore as a woman after God's own heart. <laughs> and now I, too, am a woman after God's own heart, <laughs> right? I finished the whole book. It's good stuff. But in a commitment strategy, in those seasons, man, you may not do it all the time, but you press in. We're gonna do that. You may not give regularly, but then one of you loses a job, you're in transition, and you say, hey, in those seasons where money is abnormally tight, we're gonna prioritize our giving as a faith step. God has always been our provider, even if we haven't acted that way, and when it's tight, we're gonna give generously as an act of faith. God, would you show up and provide for us? Maybe because of kids and work and life, date night has kinda got put to the side. You think about when we were first dating and together, we used to go out dancing. I would surprise her, do all this stuff. So when you're not on the same page, you say, babe, we're going out dancing. I've been looking online, I found a club, I'm gonna see what moves I got left. <laughs> we're gonna go out and just have a good time together, right? Maybe intimately, right? You're just not on the same page. Well, you don't withdraw, withhold it from one another, you kick off the seven-day challenge. Amen, I hear it. Some of you are thinking, like, what, what is the seven-day challenge? It's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> we have six kids, it will bless you and bear fruit, okay? <laughs> but you don't withdraw. There's ways that it might look different for you, there's ways that it'll look similar for all of us, but we have an enemy who is real. We live in a fallen world. Our only hope of making it is having a commitment strategy. So I can have an all-in marriage when I abandon the exit strategy, have a commitment strategy. Number three there on your outline, dream about finishing together. Dream about finishing together. Last year was our 15th wedding anniversary. Katie and I don't travel a whole lot, but uh, we started talking to people who do to say, hey, if you could go back to any place that you've been, where would it be? Like, where was your favorite? And over and over again, we started hearing Cape Town, Cape Town, Cape Town. So we started Googling Cape Town. What is there to do there, right? Uh, what, what kind of places could we stay? What kind of things could we do? And eventually, our Google searches turned into some reservations, and before long, we were there, right? We rode in a helicopter. We went kayaking with penguins. We hiked all these trails. It started with a conversation that then became a vision, right? A preferred picture in our minds of our future, which then became a reality. Proverbs 20, or Habakkuk 2, there on your outline says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. Write down the vision. Very few of us have a positive mental um, autopilot, if you will. We're not gonna drift into our preferred future on our own, right? We have to chart a course, decide where we wanna go. We've gotta write it down so that we can run after it. Katie and I have more vision for the grandparent version of ourselves than I do for what our life will look like in five years, right? 
We're gonna be called Bear and Ruby. Those are gonna be our grandparent names. We actually tattooed them on our ring fingers. I've got Ruby, she's got Bear tattooed on hers. Which was kinda cool until last year there was a guy named Bear in our small group. That was kinda weird when your wife's got another dude's name tattooed on her <laughs> ring finger, whatever, right? We purchased bearandruby.com, that's gonna be a blog where when our kids eventually have kids and they bring them to Bear and Ruby camp, that's another thing we're doing in the summer, we're gonna be able to post pictures and blog and they can read about what the kids are up to, right? We've got all this vision for this future, one day hoping that that's gonna be what we walk into. Proverbs 29 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Some translations say they cast off restraint, literally meaning that they do whatever. And I think that in large part is why we live in the culture that we do today, just a lack of a vision. People not dreaming about finishing this thing together. What does our preferred future look like? What do we wanna see God do in us and through us and then going after it? I love Paul's heart in Philippians 3. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Man, I see him straining forward, wanting all that God has for him. And that's the posture we need to take both individually and for our marriage. God, I don't wanna roll the dice on what you had in mind. Give me some vision. What would it look like, some dream for us to finish together. You know, the art for this series on your worship guide or on the screens comes from 1 Corinthians 13. It's kind of the, the anchor passage on love. If you've ever been to a wedding, chances are you've heard it read there. And we blacked out all of the other words in that text to pose the question, where is the love? And what's interesting to me about it is that that scripture introduces a list of what love is and what love is not. That love is patient, that love is kind, but that it does not boast, it does not envy. Well, in that list of things that love is are many of the same words that we find in Galatians chapter five that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is the evidence that the Spirit of God is alive and at work in you, that when he's living in you, that you would bear fruit of patience and kindness. Well, it was interesting to me that in the context of, the, of marriage, that in the very moment that you would need patience and kindness are usually also the very moments where you don't have it to give, where you're so frustrated with your spouse, right? Where you're tired of him doing this, you're tired of her talking to you that way. The idea that it presents to me is just how much we need the Spirit of God. We have no hope at making this thing apart from Jesus apart from his work in our life, that by his spirit's power in us that we could abandon the exit strategy, we could trust God with what he had in mind when he created this covenant, that we could have a commitment strategy, that you could know you have an enemy and it is not your spouse. Your battle is not against flesh and blood but spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. He or she is not the target, so have a plan that we might finish this thing together that his spirit will begin to give you some dreams for some visions of what would it look like for us to finish this thing together, that we might experience every bit of the blessing and goodness that God had in mind when he created the covenant of marriage. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this weekend and I thank you, God, for, uh, for this message and just pray, God, that somehow today you would uh, give us some vision of, of finishing together whether we are in a great season and have been married for a long time or we would say that, man, we're in 
a hard season or we would say that one day we desire to be in that kind of, of relationship. God, that you would give us some vision of finishing together that 60 years from now, if we were to raise hands as to those that have experienced the pain and consequences of divorce, your church would be a shining light in this area. God, may we be faithful. May we overcome the enemy's attacks. May your spirit be at work in us to, to experience marriage as you had in mind, every bit of the goodness and blessing that you envisioned in creating it. In Jesus' name, amen.